the book of Luke. And we have slowed down for chapter 15 now because it is so rich and so radical and so life-changing. You say, in what way, Brad? Listen to me. This parable, more than any other parable, highlights the radical nature of God's amazing grace and his extravagant love. And Jesus is the one pulling out of the stops and giving it to us. It would be amazing enough if it was a group of men and women, a committee who had studied hard to say, what is God the Father like? What do we know? But you would be tempted and you'd be suspicious to think, have they concluded too much? Have they stretched it? Have they crossed the line? It can't be this good. But you guys... It's Jesus, the Son of God, equal to God, who spent eternity in his presence before he took on flesh and came into this world. He knows his Father's heart because he shares that same heart. It's Jesus pulling out all the stops, telling us what God the Father is like. And so he gives us one of the most extreme shocking, over-the-top stories he can think of to drive home to us the grace, this kind of grace, and this kind of love that you cannot find in this kind of world. You think about it a minute. You're not going to find this kind of grace or this kind of love in this kind of world. And so I hope you realize the prodigal's bold and shameless sin is not the main point of this parable. This is not a parable for people who have been terrible. Here's your parable. There's one for you even. When you've really been awful, you've shattered relationships, you've squandered every opportunity, you have ruined your life. Oh, wow. Jesus even told a story for you. That's how it's usually taught, right? That's how it's usually communicated. You guys, Pastor Peter did a great job last week helping us to understand. You are that prodigal. I am that prodigal. Regardless of where you are geographically in this world and how dirty or clean you might look outwardly compared to someone else, you are in a far country until you come home to God. You say, Brad, how do you know that? Guess what? The Bible teaches that we're born with a far country heart. You realize that? We are born with far country hearts. We push away. We don't want God. We want to be autonomous. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to call the shots. We want to own our own life. We don't want to submit. We don't want to be accountable. You can stay cleaned up. You can stay local and close to what looks like an ordinary, decent life. But you have a heart that is a far country heart until you come home to God. This parable is for every single one of us. And so Jesus, you say, well, what's the main point? Oh, Jesus meant to showcase God's amazing grace to showcase God's amazing grace and secondly to shatter you ready the pathetic powerless and harsh versions of God and Christianity that we create and cling to so tenaciously that actually keep us from ever coming home to him What's one of the biggest struggles? If I did, what would the reception be like? Would it be a tongue lashing? Would would I be berated? Would would I be kept at arm's length? What, What kind of reception would I get if I turned to him? Jesus doesn't want you to wonder. Jesus doesn't want you to hesitate. Turn to Luke chapter 15. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. Luke chapter 15 verse 17, but when he, the prodigal, now right here, I know I've shifted to the ESV Bible translation last couple years. This is not the best translation right here. 
The New American Standard and New King James is much better. When he came to his senses, you guys. If you want to write it in your Bible, do it. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You you need to realize when he said that, it was a third category. There were household family members. There were household slaves and servants that were treated like family and actually had a pretty good life. When you were a hired hand, it meant you were a day worker in the marketplace. They owed you nothing. He's putting himself in that category. I'm not even in the household as a servant slave. I'm your hired servant. Verse 20. He arose and came to his father. There are some amazing buts in this passage. And here's one of them. But... While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Another but. But the father, look at me. The father doesn't even let him finish. He's rehearsed this over and over. Can you imagine the journey home? What he knows he wants to say. What he knows he wants to say. What he knows he wants to say. And he doesn't even get to finish it all. But the father said to the servants... Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What did Jesus want us to know about his father's heart? His father's heart for lost sinners. Well, here it is, number one. Oh, listen to me. God longs for you to come home to him. I've chosen the words carefully. God longs for you to come home to him. Oh, listen to me. We make a mistake when we think. Oh, the God of the universe, and there's billions of humans. Oh, whatever. You win some, you lose some. Some will come. I know some will come. Some won't. I don't really care. Whatever. Our Father God does not have a whatever heart. He longs for you to come home to him. Remember, we've already seen it in the previous weeks. What does it take for God the Father to come up off his throne and kick off a massive celebration that the angels say, oh my goodness, I think we're supposed to join in for this. How many sinners have to come home and repent for God the Father to come off his throne? Say it, how many? Oh my word, when one sinner comes home and you sitting here today or at one of our campuses or online, You might be that one. He sees you today. He longs for you to come home. He doesn't just see humanity like a gray blob with faces blurred out. He created you in your mother's womb. He made you an image bearer. He gave you the stamp of some of him. He loves you and longs for you to come home. Somebody say, wow. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 20. But while he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, he saw him. He saw him. Oh, listen to me. This is worth getting a hold of, you guys. 
that father was still looking for that son. He'd never given up on him. He's a wealthy nobleman. He probably had some kind of watchtower. He's got, he's got acres and acres and acres and acres and servants and servants and servants. And he must have been climbing up into that regularly for the highest spot on his property to look again. To look again. To look again. He never stopped looking. He had never given up on that son. He'd never said, oh, well, he was always a problem to begin with. He brought me nothing but heartache. No. No. And listen to me, it is all the more shocking when you understand the Middle Eastern shame and honor culture that they were living in. Do you realize in a Middle Eastern shame and honor culture, when that son departed like that, that father lost all respect in the eyes of the entire town. That shamed his name. He lost all respect from everyone else as the son departed in that way. Every other father would have been so done with that son, they would have actually had a funeral. That's what the culture did back then. They would have had a real funeral and invited people to a funeral. That's how the father would have saved face and dignity. He would have said, that son treated me as if he wanted me dead when he said, give me the inheritance now. And so I now will live as if he is dead. I only have one son now, not two, because that one is dead to me. That's not what God the Father is like. Oh, look at verse 20 again. While he was still a long way off, he, say the word, he saw him. He saw him. Why? You guys, the reason he saw him is because he never stopped loving he never stopped looking because he never stopped loving. When your heart keeps loving, you keep looking. He never stopped looking because he never stopped loving. And that's the same God we have today, you guys. The Father sees you. And he knows what I cannot know today. He sees you and he knows what I don't know. That you're some of you sitting here and at other campuses or listening online, you're in body in a church service. But you're in a far country regarding your relationship with him. And he sees you. He knows. He sees you. And so listen to me, you may not be looking for him. You may have ceased looking for him. You may have never looked for him, but he's never stopped looking for you. He's never stopped looking for you. Listen to me, you may have used God. You may have squandered blessings. You may have ignored him. You may have squandered growing up in a Christian home. You may have squandered every opportunity. You may have even cursed him. And lived as if he does not exist. But he's still looking for you. And has not given up on you. His heart is moved. And here's what you notice. His heart is moved and goes out to you before you even get to him. His heart is moved and goes out to you before you even get to him. Look at the end of verse 20. His father saw him and felt compassion. Compassion. He doesn't even know what the son's going to say yet. He saw him and felt compassion. Listen to me. The Greek word right there means his vitals moved. His vitals moved. His heart beat with longing for his son. It's a word that means a gut feeling. 
a strong emotion that causes your stomach to turn or churn. That's the word used right there. A strong emotion that causes your stomach to turn or churn. Can you remember the last time you felt like that? A strong emotion that caused your stomach to churn or turn? I can. And it almost always has to do with one of my children. Almost always. Always. That's how God the Father feels about you. You. God longs for you to come home to him. But number two, I want you to realize from what Jesus is telling us about the Father, he's ready to love you in personal and passionate ways. He's ready to love you in personal and passionate ways. Not, look at me, not some kind of British, British, stern, stoic, awkward father moment. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Good to see you, son. Good to have you home. Your mother's in the house. She'd like to see you too. Right? I mean, there's, let's be honest. You chuckle, but it's sad the number of people that have grown up with that. Earthly fathers that don't have love, and when they feel it, they're uncomfortable with it, don't know what to do with it, and certainly will not express it. Our Father God has it in unlimited measure. Maybe you've grown overly familiar. God is love and not a British, stoic, stern, awkward father moment love. He has it. He's not uncomfortable with it. And he delights in expressing it to us. Oh, my goodness. He wants to love you in personal and passionate ways. I want you to look at, I want you to look at one three-letter little word that indicates this. There's a three-letter little word in verse 20 that indicates it. Do you see it? It's that word ran. 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 The father ran to his son. The Greek word right there is actually a technical term for racing in a stadium. This was saved for the Olympics. In other words, that father took off with all his might as if a gold medal depended on it. Took off. Ran. This was not a trot. It was not a polite shuffle. It was not a middle-aged scoot. This was an all-out sprint for his son. And get this, before he's ever heard a word from him, the sight of him moved him to run. Before he'd ever heard a word from him, the sight of him moved him to run. That's the God we have. Religion, I keep trying to tell you, put Christianity in a category unto itself. There is nothing else like this in our world. Do do not buy into the lie from the media, oh, religions are all the same, just choose your flavor. Oh my goodness. Religion has never given us a God like this. Jesus had to take on flesh and come down to us to reveal to us who God really is because we could never have imagined or created a God like this because we don't know of any love like this in our world. Oh my goodness. Do not, I know some of you had wretched earthly fathers Do not make the mistake. We do not need to stop talking about God the Father and say, well, Brad, so many people have bad dads, it's not helpful. God knows what he's doing. He chose to reveal himself as a father because he is a father. The fact that you had a bad one 
doesn't mean you should pull God the Father down and say, oh my goodness, I can't even think about God because all I know is my earthly father. Well, here's your story. Don't do that. God the Father has love, is not embarrassed by it, is not awkward over it, and delights in expressing it. He sees you. He longs for you. And you just turn towards him and he'll run to you. you, Oh my goodness. I've been a Christian since I was seven. But I've been torn up all weekend over this passage. It has moved me in fresh ways. I had not stopped thinking about God as love. I had not stopped thinking about God as our Father. But I had the privilege of spending hours soaking in this. And I have been freshly moved over what we have. And I just want you to get it. I want you to know it. Oh, I've been praying for people to come home. I've been praying for him to take some lambs and put them on his shoulder and bring them home. I've been praying for him to find that lost coin and bring them home. I've been praying for that son or daughter that thought, I can never go back. I don't know what reception I would receive. Maybe I'll be politely left outside. Maybe brought in the house, but at the children's table, not the big table. You guys, come home to God the Father. He's already looking for you and longing for you. And he wants to love you in personal and passionate ways. That's our God. That's what Jesus wanted you to know. And he knew we would never figure this out on our own. And you might not appreciate this unless you understand that in that culture, respected, older noblemen did not run. It's not like, rare, no, they rarely ran. No, never. Women ran. Children ran, servants ran, noblemen did not run. It was considered to be on the level of a servant, but the father ran. Oh, listen to me. His feet were running because his heart was longing for his son. When your heart's already longing, your feet start running, running. Oh, and when he gets to him, right? He does, imagine the son seeing this speck coming, getting closer and closer and closer with, with his garments pulled up. Probably never seen his father like this. That can't be my dad. That can't be my dad running. And there's a herd of servants behind him because the father didn't declare what he's doing. He just took off running. And it's the job of the servants to run with him because he may need something. And they're thinking, what is he doing? What is he doing? The son sees him coming with his garments girded. He sees his bare legs. That was shameful in that culture. And the father doesn't care. And as he runs with this herd of servants, people in the village begin to join in. There is a massive crowd coming towards this son being led by the father in the most undignified, shameful way. But the son's wondering... Is he running like this because he can't wait to tell me what he thinks of me? He doesn't just come to a screeching halt in front of him and wait for an apology. He doesn't spit out, son, you got something you want to say to me? What you see next is just as shocking. Look at the rest of verse 20. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh, if that's not extravagant love, I don't know what is. He hasn't heard him say anything. He wraps his arms around him, pulls him in, falls on his filthy neck, right? He's not even cleaned up yet. And begins to kiss him, get this, over and over and over. You say, Brad, how do you know that? The Greek verb there is in the continual ongoing tense. A better translation would be, he smothered him with kisses. You ever seen one of those moments where the person being embraced and kissed is ready to be done and they're starting to pull away? This is awkward. They're not letting me pull away. The father wouldn't let him pull away. He kisses him over 
And oh, so this was not, I know you, you know in that culture, oh, they greeted each other with a peck on each cheek. That's not what, it's passionately, fervently, tenderly, over and over and over. And you need to realize also, it's very possible, this is my conjecture, but it's very possible, there were two reasons he took off running like it was an Olympic event. His heart had never stopped looking and longing for his son. But you guys, secondly, do you realize in that shame and honor culture, he wanted to get to his son first before people began to abuse him. That's our father. He steps in the way. Our God steps in the way of what we should receive in that culture, the father would have received word that the son has come home and would not have even come out to the house or seen him. He would have left him sitting in the city gate for three days at least to be mocked, scorned, and even spit on for what he had done. That's the only way a nobleman could come out. And then, and only then, they would have made arrangements for how you can pay me back for everything you did. He would have been held at arm's length. He ran. Because his heart was longing for his son and he wanted to get there first. And notice, he meant for this to happen publicly. So that every, this could have happened inside the house. This could have happened on the porch. It happened outside the city with crowds so that he could put on display publicly. I don't know what you think about my son. I don't know your intentions of what you think, how you're gonna treat him, but here's how I'm gonna treat him, and you better take your cues from me. This is my son who's come home. This is how you treat him. Wow. 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 Jesus has packed this story with shocking and extravagant grace. Surely you've seen a homecoming scene like this. I, I, I travel quite a bit speaking at conferences, so I'm in the airport a lot. And I'm often stirred. I see homecoming scenes at the airport, right? Posters and stuff. People weeping. People who won't let someone go. Surely you've seen it. I saw it when my son was in the military. You see it on a military base. You see it in the airport. A homecoming scene like this. So let me ask you. Can you fathom God loving you like this? Or does it embarrass you? Do you feel uneasy? Because you don't have a category for this. Some of you don't even have an earthly relationship like this. And my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry. Some of you do not know of any love like this because you've not had it in this world. Even those that were supposed to love you most have made it clear by the way they relate to you. Lots of manipulation. Lots of expectations. Lots of you. Why? Because humans love, but humans hurt And very often when you go to turn home, they're so busy being hurt and wounded and offended by what you did to them, they can't love you. God's not like that. We do not have a wounded, hurting, can't believe you did this to me, God. He loves you. And Jesus meant for this parable to cause you to never, if it has grown too familiar, if when you see the poster in the end zone at an NFL game, John 3.16, and you think, yawn, whatever, he meant for you to never hear John 3.16 the same way again. For God so loved fervently, passionately, tenderly this world that he gave His only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. He's not stoic and indifferent towards your decision, he longs 
for you to come home. He's done everything necessary for you to come home. And he longs for you to come home. Jesus gave these parables in Luke 15 for one great purpose. To alter, turn upside down, and forever correct our tame and short-sighted notions of who God is, how God loves, and who God loves. Because our God is not like us, and his love is not like ours. Come home today. Come home Come home. So I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, I can't turn to God. I can't turn to God. He wouldn't have me. At best, he'll receive me with a lecture and a tongue lashing, keep me at arm's length, won't let me get close to him. Here's your answer. Jesus is telling you, that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna happen. You won't even get all the way to him and you'll see him running to you. You won't even get everything out of your mouth that you think you should confess and he'll be pulling you in and loving you. Loving you. Why? Because he already loves you. That won't be the moment the love starts. He loves you now. He loves you now. He loves you now. Romans 5, but God demonstrates his love towards us In that when we start towards home, no. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's looking for you. He's loving you. He's looking for you. He's loving you and he wants to love you even better. Personally and passionately. Let it sink in. Regardless of what you've done, What's been done to you, who you've been with, or how long you've been there. He's ready to receive you as you are. The prodigal son didn't say, I've got to get myself a job. I'll live in a nearby city. I'll improve myself. I'll clean up first. I want to make him proud. Then I'll come. That's how some of you think. And you'll never get there. It'll never happen because you can't clean yourself up. You can't do it. You come to him just as you are. And he begins to change you from the inside out. This kind of love will change you. When you experience this kind of love, this kind of acceptance, this kind of forgiveness, this kind of adoption, you're never the same. Never the same. Let it sink in for a minute. Because this is so different than the love we experience here in this world. That's so often filled with rejection, expectations, conditions. Ernest Hemingway was a famous author. Wrote seven novels, a bunch of short stories, sold millions of books. But that man, with all that fame and acclaim and no doubt money took his own life with a shotgun at age 61 after almost drinking himself to death prior to the shotgun blast. And Philip Yancey, Philip Yancey gives some sad commentary on the kind of love he saw growing up in his family. I know some of you, the kind of love you saw, conditional love, I'll love you if, and when you wrong me, You've got mama's wrath to deal with or daddy's wrath to deal with or both. So often we grow up with that. He did. Listen to what Philip Yancey says. Hemingway knew about the ungrace of families. His grandparents had attended evangelical Wheaton College. Look at me. Can you get this kind of treatment from so-called Christians who go to church? I wish it wasn't true. But it is. That's why I tell people all the time when I try to share the gospel with them, they've already had a bad experience with a Christian or a bad experience with a church. Sorry that happened. But please set that aside and consider Jesus. 
Not the last Christian you ran into that, oh, by the way, just might not be a Christian. That answers some of that mess. Whole lot of people that say they're on their way to heaven aren't going there. But can Christians who are truly born again screw it up? Yes. Don't judge Jesus or God the Father on your last Christian you worked with or lived near or grew up with. Look at who he is in the scriptures. His grandparents attended Evangelical Wheaton College. His devout parents detested Hemingway's libertine life. I get it, right? I've revealed enough to you what it's like to grow up and know you want your kids to live a certain way and see them not. I can relate. They detested his libertine life. Problem? They began to express that by the way they treated him. And two weeks ago, I tried to help you know that's not what God's called us to do. Let them know what you think about the way they're living. Make sure they don't think, oh, she loves me, he loves me because they don't mind how I'm living. And after you've expressed it, you love that libertine sinner. You love them and you pull them in close. You eat meals with them. You let them spend time with you. God has not called us to punish them and prove to them they're living wrong. He wants you to rock them and disarm them and disorient them by how can you love me when I know I'm breaking your heart? Because that's what puts on display God's love. God's love. His devout parents detested Hemingway's libertine life. After a time, his mother even refused him in her presence. One year for his birthday. Now some of you, some of you are going to be shocked, but some of you are like, yeah. I grew up in family like that. One year for his birthday, she mailed him a cake along with the gun his father had used to kill himself. A mother. A mother. But that's what happens when you're so busy being offended and wounded and hurt and you wake up every day saying, how could you? How could you? How could you? God is not sitting in the heavens saying, how could you? He knows it all and he sent his son to die for it. Another year, she wrote him a letter explaining that a mother's life is like a bank. She said, quote, every child that is born to her enters the world with a large and prosperous bank account, seemingly inexhaustible. The child, she continued, makes withdrawals, but no deposits during all the early years. Later, when the child grows up, it is his responsibility to replenish the supply he has drawn down. At least she was honest enough to put it in writing. Most mamas live this way without communicating it clearly. And the child thinks, what's up with mama? This is what's up. She thinks you owe her something. Hemingway's mother then proceeded to spell out all the specific ways in in which Ernest should be making deposits to keep the account in good standing. Flowers, fruit or candy, a surreptitious paying of mother's bills. And above all, here's what's so sad, you guys. When someone demonstrating that kind of so-called love loops Jesus in and talks about him at the same time. Listen to me. If you are an angry Christian right now, if you're living in a raw, unloving way, please don't mention Jesus and take your fish ball cap off because you're messing things up. It's awful when so-called Christians loop Jesus in and she's like, above all, A determination to stop neglecting your duties to God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, does his mother sound like the father we're looking at here? And do you think her letter showed him how much God loves him and how God would receive him and forgive him if he turned towards home? If he was to draw conclusions about Christians based on his mother, would he want to go home? Would he think he's going to be received? There's what she did. In fact, if you look at his life, you'll see that he never got over his hatred for his mother, watch this, or her savior. Because he said, if that's your idea of love, and you say you know Jesus, I want nothing to do with you or him. And since Hemingway was such a gifted writer, especially with short stories, I can't, I can't help but wonder, 
did he ever read the story of the prodigal son? I mean, even lost people declare it is the best short story ever written. People like Dickens and Shakespeare and best short story ever written. Because Jesus came up with it. He's God. He's good at everything, including short stories. I got to wonder, did he ever read the story of the prodigal son and realize mama got it wrong, so wrong, with a love that's so busy being personally hurt and that's filled with guilt and expectations and condemnation and what you owe me. Listen to me. While it's too late for Hemingway, it's not too late for you, my friend. It's not too late for you. Regardless of what kind of notion you've been carrying with you about God, the Father, and Christianity that some Christian gave you, the home you grew up gave you, a church you grew up in gave you, Jesus is here to shatter that puny picture with the reality of a running, longing, loving God who's ready for you to come home, who's ready to receive you. And if the story stopped right here, it'd be extravagant enough, but it doesn't. There's more. Point number three, Jesus wants you to know that he's ready to forgive you with extravagant grace. So he wants to love you with personal and passionate love, but he's ready to forgive you with extravagant grace. In other words, some of you think, all right, I I would be forgiven, maybe, but oh, there would be no lavish drawing me. I would not be treated in a lavish. I would always be reminded of what I've done, my past, my past, my past. Verses 22 to 24 show you the extravagant grace of this kind of forgiveness. This kind of, I do a lot of counseling, right? And so often I I, I can, by God's grace, lead someone to forgive. And I added one fourth thing about forgiveness about 10 years ago because I kept running into it. I always say, now when you forgive, you're making a promise. I will not dwell on this myself. God doesn't dwell on it after we come. I will not talk about this to others. God doesn't talk bad about us to others. I will not use this against you in the future. God does not. Our sin is cast into the depths of the sea as far as the east. But here's what I ran into. So I added, I will not allow this hurt or incident to keep me from rebuilding closeness with you. Often humans are willing to forgive, but we're never going to relate the same way again. Because you did that. I'm not going to let you get close to me. That's a risk. Guess what? Because God is the greatest lover, love puts you at risk. His heart is wide open. He does not forgive you and then keep you at arm's length. He pulls you in. Lavish. The word lavish. Describe lavish. Oh, my goodness. What happens in verses 22 to 24 is lavish. Sandals on his feet. I hope you realize sandals on his feet was not like just a necessity. Oh, man, look at his feet. Let's put some shoes on the kid. You guys, servants and hired hands went barefoot. It was a public statement. He's my son. Put sandals on his feet. In front of everybody. Not going to be a hired hand. He's not, he's not a servant. He's my son. He never stopped being, and now he fully is. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the, what kind of robe? Now, you also got to appreciate, this is not the day we live in with the income we have. And you open your closet. Well, here I am expressing how old I am. Yeah, I open my closet. I can't walk in it. That would be awkward. I'd, be, I'd have my, you have walk-in closets where you go in and you're like, dang, what nice outfit will I wear? They had one amazing robe that was saved, usually for the eldest son's wedding. And next week we'll get into that. Part of why the eldest son was so ticked. There goes my robe. (laughs) Oh my goodness, go get the best. And here's the other thing you gotta realize. He is putting on display, oh my goodness, he's telling the servants to do all this. They are serving this filthy, stinking, 
dishonoring, shameful son who's rejected his father. Notice he he tells the servants because he wants to put on display. He is a son with all privileges, all forgiveness, all grace. Get the best robe and put it on him. The ring, you guys, it wasn't just ornamental. Let's get him some bling. The ring wasn't bling. The ring was the family ring with the seal that they would press into hot wax on legal documents. He's saying, this son has full rights and authority and privileges in the family. He squandered his inheritance. Put a robe on him, put sandals on his feet, bring the ring, and then kill the fatted calf. I know we eat meat, or at least I do, every day. A couple weeks ago, we had lentils. I didn't say anything. And as I was driving home the next day, I thought, hmm, wonder if that's going to happen again. So I just called ahead and said, hey, what are we thinking about for tonight? If it's lentils, could you throw some kind of piece of meat on top of that? And she laughed. I was like, I need some meat. I'll do that one night. Meat! They didn't meet eat. They did not eat meat every day. Almost never. But oh my goodness, the fatted calf, guess what? Every family didn't have some fatted calf tied up in the backyard. Only a wealthy nobleman could even do this. Because in the Greek, it literally says, grain fed calf. You didn't give grain to animals. And you, you, you wanted it to be about five months old. This was prime grain fed veal. The calf would weigh about 500 pounds. The best cuts alone would serve about 200 people. In other words, and they had no preservation, everybody's going to eat tonight. This entire village is going to eat in a way they probably haven't eaten in months and months and months. And they're going to do it in a celebration moment for this son that they all watched screaming out of the city with an inheritance, shaming his father, dishonoring his father, and basically saying, I wish you were a dad. But the father says, I'm so glad you're not. Welcome home. Welcome home. What not arm's distance, not cool, calculated, little bit of, I'm going to make you feel it for a while. Oh, and in case you missed it, this entire chapter, sheep, coin, son, it's just over the top with celebration and joy. You say, Brad, why? I'll tell you why. Because when God's extravagant grace meets our extreme sin, there's a reason to celebrate in a way that nothing else in this world does. Celebrate it. God's extravagant grace in the face of our sin. Celebrate it. Celebrate it. So what about you today? Here in person, every campus, online. I don't want you to just just be stirred by the best short story that's ever been given in the world. I want you to be changed. I want some of you to come home. Come home. I'm not saying join our church, give some money. Please, no, 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 no. I want you to come home to your creator, God and father who's been looking for you, loving you, and he's ready to run to you and love you in passionate and personal ways and to forgive you with extravagant grace. Oh, so you say, Brad, what do I need to do to get this love and this grace in my life? Listen to me. The only thing you need to do is what that prodigal son did. You ready? He came to his senses. He turned away from his pig pen of sin and he went home to God. Now, I do want to help you here. If you're wondering like, okay, Why did he come to his senses? Why do some people come to their senses and others it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and they don't? Oh, there's a verse in 2 Timothy. It's not in your bulletin, but jot it down. 2 Timothy 2.25. You want to know what's happening right there when he came to his senses? 2 Timothy 2.25. It says that God may grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and come to their senses, having escaped 
the snare of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. You realize God, or you'll stay in your stupor of sin, has to grant you repentance. And that's when it's like, huh, he began to say, I'm hungry. Until God does that by his spirit, you keep thinking, no, the pods are good. Pods are good. It'll get better. Put some sauce on the pods. It'll work. He has to work for you to come to your senses and say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And I want you to notice, in verse 18 is where he ponders. He begins to say to himself, you know what? I'm hungry. You know what? In my father's house, there's plenty of food even with the servants. I think I'll go home. And notice, here's, the, here's what you have to do. He does say he owns his sin. I've sinned against heaven. That's sin against God. And against you. That's repentance. But notice verse 20 is when he acts on what he's been pondering. Verse 18 is where he ponders it. I should arise and go home. And I should say this. Some of you have been pondering this for what? We're in Luke 15. Maybe you've been with us the entire book of Luke. God has to grant repentance. You have to choose to respond. If you are coming to your senses, if you have more of awareness of what life is really about, if you're starting to realize I'm miserable, I actually am miserable. Oh, that's the grace of God already. Do not delay. Do not resist. He had to, in verse 20, arise and go. Today. Don't delay. Today. I want you to bow your heads as we close. And I want you to give, that, give you that opportunity right now. You don't have to get up out of your seat. You don't have to walk forward. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to give us any money. You don't have to get baptized because that does not save you. But you do need to arise in your heart and stop pondering it and do it. Come home. Right where you sit, you just say, God, I have sinned. I'm a sinner against heaven, against you. And you sent your son to die for me. I want to come home. I'll turn from my pig's pen of sin and I want to come home. And then would you clean me up? Would you change me? Would you love me? Would you grace me in ways I've never tasted yet? Forgive me. Receive me. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit right now that is stirring hearts, is moving, moving, drawing people. Oh God, thank you for the sacrifice in Jesus for our sins. Thank you for taking on flesh to reveal to us a God that we could have never imagined or created on our own. Save people. Bring some people home today by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.